Disc 5. In clear starlight, we set out again, still winding our way between clumps and thickets in a southwesterly direction. Out of respect for Michael's warning, we were travelling as quietly as we could, with our eyes and ears alert for any signs of interception. For some miles there was nothing to be heard but the steady, cushioned clumping of the great horse's hoofs, slight creaking from the girths and panniers, and occasionally some small animal scuttling out of our way. After three hours or more we began to perceive uncertainly a line of deeper darkness ahead, and presently the edge of more forest solidified to loom up like a black wall. It was not possible in the shadow to tell how dense it was. The best course seemed to be to hold straight on until we came to it, and then, if it turned out to be not easily penetrable, to work along the edge until we could find a suitable place to make an entrance. We started to do that, and had come within a hundred yards of it when, without any warning, a gun went off to the rear and shot whistled past us. Both horses were startled and plunged. I was all but flung out of my pannier. The rearing horses pulled away and the lead rope parted with a snap. The other horse bolted straight towards the forest, then thought better of it and swerved to the left. Hours pelted after it. There was nothing to be done but wedge oneself in the pannier and hang on as we tore along in a rain of clods and stones flung up by the hoofs of the lead horse. Somewhere behind us a gun fired again, and we speeded up still more. For a while or more we hurtled on in a ponderous, earth-shaking gallop. Then there was a flash ahead and half left. At the sound of the shot a horse sprang sideways in mid-stride, swerved right and raced for the forest. We crouched still lower in the baskets as we crashed among the trees. By luck alone we made the entry at a point where the bigger trunks were well separated. But for all that it was a nightmare ride, with branches slapping and dragging at the panniers. The great horse simply ploughed ahead, avoiding the larger trees, thrusting through the rest, smashing its way by sheer weight while branches and saplings cracked and snapped at the onslaught. Inevitably the horse slowed down, but its panicked determination to get away from the guns abated very little. I had to brace with arms and legs and whole body to avoid being battered to pieces in the pannier, scarcely daring to raise my head even for a quick look lest a branch should knock it off. I could not tell whether there was any pursuit, but it seemed improbable. Not only was it darker under the trees, but a horse of ordinary size would most likely have disemboweled itself in any attempt to follow over the snapped-off stems standing up like stakes behind us. The horse began to grow calmer. The pace and violence eased, and it started to pick its way instead of crashing through. Presently the trees on our left grew thinner. Rosalind, leaning out of her pannier, caught up the reins again and urged the creature that way. We came out obliquely upon a narrow open space where we could see the stars overhead again. Whether it was an artificial track or a natural opening was impossible to tell in the poor light. We paused a moment, wondering whether to risk it, then decided that the easier going would offset the disadvantages of easier pursuit and turn southward along it. A crackling of branches to one side brought both of us facing round with bows ready, but it was only the other great horse. It came trotting out of the shadows with a whinny of pleasure and fell into place behind us as though the rope still held it. The country was more broken now. 
The trail wound, taking us round outcrops of rock, slanting down the sides of gullies to cross small streams. Sometimes there were fairly open stretches, at others the trees met overhead. Our progress was inevitably slow. We must, by now, we reckoned, be truly in the fringes. Whether or not the pursuit would risk following any further, we could not tell. When we tried to consult Michael, there was no response, so we guessed he was asleep. It was perplexing to know whether the time had not come when we ought to get rid of the tell-tale great horses, perhaps drive them on along the track while we made off in a different direction on foot. The decision was difficult to make without more information. It would be foolish to get rid of the creatures unless we were sure that the pursuit would risk coming right into Fringe's country after us. But if it did, it would gain on us quickly by making a great deal faster time in daylight than we were making now. Moreover, we were tired, and the prospect of starting to travel on foot was far from attractive. Once more we tried, and failed, to make contact with Michael. A moment later the choice was taken away from us. We were at one of the stretches where the trees met above us, making a dark tunnel through which the horse chose its way slowly and carefully. Suddenly, something dropped full on me, crushing me down in the pannier. I had no warning, no chance to use the bow. There was the weight jolting the breath out of me, then a shower of sparks in my head, and that was the end of it. Chapter 14 I came back slowly, lingering for what seemed a long time, only half aware. Rosalind was calling me, the real Rosalind, the one who dwelt inside and showed herself too seldom. The other, the practical, capable one, was her own convincing creation, not herself. I had seen her begin to build it when she was a sensitive, fearful, yet determined child. She became aware by instinct, perhaps sooner than the rest of us, that she was in a hostile world, and deliberately equipped herself to face it. The armour had grown slowly, plate by plate. I had seen her find her weapons and become skilled with them, watched her construct a character so thoroughly and wear it so constantly that the spells she almost deceived herself. I loved the girl one could see. I loved her tall, slim shape, the poise of her neck, her small, pointed breasts, her long, slim legs, and the way she moved, and the sureness of her hands, and her lips when she smiled. I loved the bronze-gold hair that felt like heavy silk in one's hand, her satin-skinned shoulders, her velvet cheeks, and the warmth of her body and the scent of her breath. All these were easy to love, too easy. Anyone must love them. They needed her defences, the crust of independence and indifference, the air of practical, decisive reliability, the unroused interest, the aloof manner. The qualities were not intended to endear, and at times they could hurt, but one who had seen the how and why of them could admire them, if only as a triumph of art over nature. But now it was the under-Rosalind calling gently, forlornly, all armour thrown aside, the heart naked. And again there are no words. Words exist that can, used by a poet, achieve a dim monochrome of the body's love. 
but beyond that they fail clumsily. My love flowed out to her, hers back to me. Mine stroked and soothed, hers caressed. The distance and the difference between us dwindled and vanished. We could meet, mingle, and blend. Neither one of us existed any more. For a time there was a single being that was both. There was escape from the solitary cell, a brief symbiosis, sharing all the world. No one else knew the hidden Rosalind. Even Michael and the rest caught only glimpses of her. They did not know at what cost the overt Rosalind had been wrought. None of them knew my dear, tender Rosalind longing for escape, gentleness and love. Grown afraid now of what she had built for her own protection, yet more afraid still of facing life without it. Duration is nothing. Perhaps it was only for an instant we were together again. The importance of a point is in its existence. It has no dimensions. Then we were apart, and I was becoming aware of mundane things. A dim grey sky, considerable discomfort. And presently Michael, anxiously inquiring what had happened to me. With an effort I raked my wits together. I don't know. Something hit me, I told him. But I think I'm all right now, except that my head aches and I'm damned uncomfortable. It was only as I replied that I perceived why I was so uncomfortable, that I was still in the pannier, but sort of folded into it, and the pannier itself was still in motion. Michael did not find that very informative. He applied to Rosalind. They jumped down on us from overhanging branches, four or five of them. One landed right on top of David, she explained. They, asked Michael, fringes people, she told him. I was relieved. It had occurred to me that we might have been outflanked by the others. I was on the point of asking what was happening now when Michael inquired. Was it you they fired at last night? I admitted that we had been fired at, but there might have been other firing for all I knew. No, only one lot, he told us with disappointment. I hoped they'd made a mistake and were on a false trail. We've all been called together. They think it's too risky to come further into the fringes in small groups. We're supposed to be assembled to move off in four hours or so from now. Round about a hundred, they reckon. They've decided that if we do meet any fringes people and give them a good hiding, it'll save trouble later on anyway. You'd better get rid of those great horses now. You'll never cover your trail while you have them. A bit late for that advice, Rosalind told him. I'm in a pannier on the first horse with my thumbs tied together, and David's in a pannier on the second. Where's Petra? asked Michael anxiously. Oh, she's all right. She's in the other pannier of this horse, fraternizing with the man in charge. What happened exactly? Well, first they dropped on us, and then a lot more came out of the trees and steadied up the horses. They made us get down and lifted David down. Then when they talked and argued for a bit, they decided to get rid of us. So they loaded us into the panniers again, like this, and put a man on each horse and sent us on, the same way we'd been going. Further into the fringes, that is. Yes. Well, at least that's the best direction, Michael commented. What's the attitude? Threatening? Oh, no. 
They're just being careful we don't run off. They seemed to have some idea who we were, but weren't quite sure what to do with us. They argued a bit over that, but they were much more interested in the great horses, really, I think. The man on this horse seems to be quite harmless. He's talking to Petra with an odd sort of earnestness. I'm not sure he isn't a little simple. Can you find out what they're intending to do with you? I did ask, but I don't think he knows. He's just been told to take us somewhere. Well, Michael seemed at a loss for once. Well, I suppose all we can do is wait and see. But it'll do no harm to let him know we'll be coming after you. He left it at that for the moment. I struggled and wriggled around. With some difficulty, I managed to get onto my feet and stand up in the swaying basket. The man in the other pannier looked round at me quite amiably. Whoa there, he said to the great horse, and reined in. He unslung a leather bottle from his shoulder and swung it across to me on the strap. I uncorked it, drank gratefully, and swung it back to him. We went on. I was able to see our surroundings now. It was broken country, no longer thick forest, though well wooded, and even a first look at it assured me that my father had been right about normality being mocked in these parts. I could scarcely identify a single tree with certainty. There were familiar trunks supporting the wrong shape of tree, familiar types of branches growing out of the wrong kind of bark and bearing the wrong kind of leaves. For a while our view to the left was cut off by a fantastically woven fence of immense bramble trunks with spines as big as shovels. In another place a stretch of ground looked like a dried-out riverbed full of large boulders, but the boulders turned out to be globular fungi set as close together as they could grow. There were trees with trunks too soft to stand upright, so that they looped over and grew along the ground. Here and there were patches of miniature trees, shrunk and gnarled and looking centuries old. I glanced surreptitiously again at the man in the other pannier. There didn't seem to be anything wrong with him except that he looked very dirty, as were his ragged clothes and crumpled hat. He caught my eye on him. Never been in the fringes before, boy? he asked. No, I told him. Is it all like this? He grinned and shook his head. None of it's like any other part. That's why the fringes is the fringes. Pretty near nothing grows true to stock here, yet. Yet? I repeated. Sure. It'll settle down, though, in time. Wild country was fringes once, but it's steadier now. Likely the parts you come from were wild country once, but they've settled down more. God's little game of patience, I reckon it is. But he certainly takes... God, I said doubtfully. They've always taught us that it's the devil that rules in the fringes. He shook his head. That's what they tell you over there. Tisn't so, boy. It's your parts where the old devil's hanging on and looking after his own. Arrogant they are. The true image and all that. Want to be like the old people. Tribulation hasn't taught them a thing. The old people thought they were the tops, too. Had ideals, they did. Knew just how the world ought to be run. All they had to do was get it fixed up comfortable and keep it that way. Then everybody'd be fine on account of their ideas being a lot more civilized than God's. He shook his head. Didn't work out, boy. Couldn't work out. They weren't God's last word like they thought. God doesn't have any last word. If he did, he'd be dead. But he isn't dead. 
and he changes and grows like everything else that's alive. So when they were doing their best to get everything fixed and tidy on some kind of eternal lines they'd thought up for themselves, he sent along tribulation to bust it up and remind them that life is change. He saw it wasn't going to come out the way things lay, so he shuffled the pack to see if it wouldn't give a better break next time. He paused to consider that a moment and went on. Maybe he didn't shuffle quite enough. The same sequences seem to have got kind of stuck together some places. Parts where you come from, for instance. There they are, still on the same line, still reckoning they're the last word, still trying their damnedest to stay as they are and fix up just the same state of affairs that brought tribulation last time. One day he's going to get pretty tired of the way they can't learn a lesson and start showing them another trick or two. Oh, I said vaguely, but safely. It was odd, I felt, how many people seem to have positive, if conflicting, information upon God's views. The man did not seem altogether satisfied that he had got his point home. He waved his hand at the deviational landscape about us, and I suddenly noticed his own irregularity. The right hand lacked the first three fingers. Some day, he proclaimed, something is going to steady down out of all this. It'll be new, and new kinds of plants mean new creatures. Tribulation was a shake-up to give us a new start. But where they can make the stock breed true, they destroy deviations, I pointed out. They try to. They think they do, he agreed. They're pig-headedly determined to keep the old people's standards. But do they? Can they? How do they know that their crops and their fruit and their vegetables are just the same? Aren't there disputes? And doesn't it nearly always turn out that the breed with a higher yield is accepted in the end? Aren't cattle crossbred to get hardiness or milk yield or meat? Sure, they can wipe out the obvious deviations, but are you sure that the old people would recognize any of the present breeds at all? I'm not, by any means. You can't stop it, you see. You can be obstructive and destructive, and you can slow it all up and distort it for your own ends, but somehow it keeps on happening. Just look at these horses. They're government approved, I told him. Sure, that's just what I mean, he said. But if it keeps on anyway, I don't see why there had to be tribulation, I objected. For other forms it keeps on keeping on, he said, but not for man. Not for kinds like the old people and your people, if they can help it. They stamp on any change. They close the way and keep the type fixed, because they've got the arrogance to think themselves perfect. As they reckon it, they and only they are in the true image. Very well. Then it follows that if the image is true, they themselves must be God. And being God, they reckon themselves entitled to decree thus far and no farther. That is their great sin. They try to strangle the life out of life. There was an air about the last few sentences, rather out of keeping with the rest, which caused me to suspect I had encountered some kind of creed once more. I decided to shift the conversation onto a more practical plane by inquiring why we had been taken prisoner. He did not seem very sure about that except to assure me that it was always done when any stranger was found entering Fringe's territory. I thought that over, and then got into touch with Michael again. What do you suggest we tell them? I asked. 
I imagine there'll be an examination. When they find we're physically normal, we shall have to give some reason for being on the run. Best to tell them the truth, only minimize it. Play it right down the way Catherine and Sally did. Just let them know enough to account for it, he suggested. Very well, I agreed. Do you understand that, Petra? You tell them you can just make think pictures to Rosalind and me. Nothing about Michael or Sealand people. The Sealand people are coming to help. They're not so far away as they were now, she told us confidently. Michael received that with scepticism. All very nice, if they can, but don't mention them. All right, Petra agreed. We discussed whether we would tell our two guards about the intended pursuit and decided it would do no harm. The man in the other pannier showed no surprise at the news. Good, that'll suit us, he said. But he explained no further, and we plodded steadily on. Petra began to converse with her distant friend again, and there was no doubt that the distance was less. Petra did not have to use such disturbing force to reach her, and for the first time I was able by straining hard to catch bits of the other side of the exchange. Rosalind caught it too. She put out a question as strongly as she could. The unknown strengthened her projection and came to us clearly, pleased to have made contact, and anxious to know more than Petra could tell. Rosalind explained what she could of our present situation, and that we did not seem to be in immediate danger. The other advised, Be cautious. Agree to whatever they say, and play for time. Be emphatic about the danger you are in from your own people. It is difficult to advise you without knowing the tribe. Some deviational tribes detest the appearance of normality. It can't do any harm to exaggerate how different you are inside from your own people. The really important matter is a little girl. Keep her safe at all costs. We have never before known such a power of projection in one so young. What is her name? Rosalind spelt it out in letter forms. Then she asked, But who are you? What is this Sealand? We are the new people, your kind of people, the people who can think together. We're the people who are going to build a new kind of world, different from the old people's world and from the savages. The kind of people that God intended, perhaps, I inquired with a feeling of being on familiar ground again. I don't know about that. Who does? But we do know that we can make a better world than the old people did. They were only ingenious half-humans, little better than savages, all living shut off one from another, with only clumsy words to link them. Often they were shut off still more by different languages and different beliefs. Some of them could think individually, but they had to remain individuals. Emotions they could sometimes share, but they could not think collectively. When their conditions were primitive, they could get along all right, as the animals can. But the more complex they made their world, the less capable they were of dealing with it. They had no means of consensus. They learned to cooperate constructively in small units, but only destructively in large units. They aspired greedily, and then refused to face the responsibilities they had created. They created vast problems, and then buried their heads in the sands of idle faith. There was, you see, no real communication, no understanding between them. They could, at their best, be near sublime animals, but not more. They could never have succeeded, if they had not brought down tribulation which all but destroyed them. 
then they would have bred with the carelessness of animals until they had reduced themselves to poverty and misery, and ultimately to starvation and barbarism. One way or another, they were foredoomed because they were an inadequate species. It occurred to me again that these Sealanders had no little opinion of themselves. To one brought up as I had been, this irreverence for the old people was difficult to take. While I was still wrestling with it, Rosalind asked, But you, where do you come from? Our ancestors had the good fortune to live on an island, or rather two islands somewhat secluded. They did not escape tribulation and its effects even there, though it was less violent there than in most places, but they were cut off from the rest of the world and sank back almost to barbarism. Then somehow the strain of people who could think together began. In time, those who were able to do it best found others who could do it a little, and taught them to develop it. It was natural for the people who could share thoughts to tend to marry one another, so that the strain was strengthened. Later on, they started to discover thought-shape-makers in other places, too. That was when they began to understand how fortunate they had become. They found that even in places where physical deviations don't count for much, people who have think together are usually persecuted. For a long time, nothing could be done to help the same kind of people in other places. Though some tried to sail to Zealand in canoes, and sometimes they got there, but later, when we had machines again, we were able to fetch some of them to safety. Now we try to do that whenever we make contact. But we have never before made contact at anything like this distance. It is still a strain for me to reach you. It will get easier, but I shall have to stop now. Look after the little girl. She is unique and tremendously important. Protect her at all costs. The thought patterns faded away, leaving nothing for a moment. Then Petra came in. Whatever she may have failed to make of the rest, she had caught the last part all right. That's me, she proclaimed with satisfaction and totally unnecessary vigor. We rocked and recovered. Beware, odious, smug child. We haven't met Harry Jack yet, Rosalind told her with subduing effect. Michael, she added, did all that reach you too? Yes, Michael responded with a touch of reserve. Condescending, I thought. Sounded as if she were lecturing to children. Still coming from a devil of a long way away, too. I don't see how they can come fast enough to be any help at all. We shall be starting after you in a few minutes now. The great horses clumped steadily on. The landscape continued to be disturbing and alarming to one brought up in respect for the propriety of forms. Certainly few things were as fantastic as the growth that Uncle Axel had told of in the South. On the other hand, practically nothing was comfortably familiar or even orthodox. There was so much confusion that it did not seem to matter any more whether a particular tree was an aberrate or just a miscegenate. But it was a relief to get away from trees and out into open country for a bit, though even there the bushes weren't homogeneal or identifiable, and the grass was pretty queer too. We stopped only once for food and drink, and for no more than half an hour before we were on our way again. Two hours or so later, after several more stretches of woodlands, we reached a medium-sized river. On our side the level ground descended in a sharp, steep bank to the water. On the other stood a line of low, reddish cliffs.
We turned downstream, keeping to the top of the bank. A quarter of a mile along, at a place marked by a grossly deviational tree shaped like a huge wooden pear, and with all its branches growing in one big tuft at the top, a runnel cut well back into the bank and made a way for the horses to get down. We forded the river obliquely, making for a gap in the opposite cliffs. When we reached it, it turned out to be little more than a cleft, so narrow in some places that the panniers scraped both walls, and we could scarcely squeeze through. There was quite a hundred yards of it before the way widened and began to slope up to normal ground level. Where the sides diminished to mere banks, seven or eight men stood with bows in their hands. They gaped incredulously at the great horses and looked half inclined to run. Abreast of them, we stopped. The man in the other pannier jerked his head at me. Down you get, boy, he told me. Petra and Rosalind were already climbing down from the leading great horse. As I reached the ground, the driver gave a thump, and both great horses moved ponderously on. Petra clasped my hand nervously, but for the moment all the ragged, unkempt bowmen were still more interested in the horses than in us. There was nothing immediately alarming about the group. One of the hands which held a bow had six fingers. One man displayed a head like a polished brown egg without a hair on it or on his face. Another had immensely large feet and hands. But whatever was wrong with the rest was hidden under their rags. Rosalind and I shared a feeling of relief at not being confronted with the kinds of grotesquerie we had half expected. Petra, too, was encouraged by finding that none of them fulfilled the traditional description of Hairy Jack. Presently, when they had watched the horses out of sight up a track that disappeared among trees, they turned their attention to us. A couple of them told us to come along. The rest remained where they were. A well-used path led downwards through woods for a few hundred yards, and then gave on to a clearing. To the right ran a wall of the reddish cliffs again, not more than forty feet high. They appeared to be the reverse side of the ridge which retained the river, and the whole face was pocked by numerous holes, with ladders roughly made of branches leading to the higher openings. The level ground in front was littered with crude huts and tents. One or two small cooking fires smoked among them. A few tattered men and a rather larger number of slatternly-looking women moved around with no great activity. We wound our way among hovels and refuse heaps until we reached the largest of the tents. It appeared to be an old rick cover, the loot presumably of some raid, fastened over a framework of lashed poles. A figure seated on a stool just inside the entrance looked up as we approached. The sight of his face jolted me with panic for a moment. It was so like my father's. Then I recognized him. The same Spider-Man I had seen as a captive at Wacknook seven or eight years before. The two men who had brought us pushed us forward in front of him. He looked the three of us over. His eyes travelled up and down Rosalind's slim, straight figure in a way I did not care for, nor she either. Then he studied me more carefully and nodded to himself, as if satisfied over something. Remember me? he asked. Yes, I told him. He shifted his gaze from my face. He let it stray over the conglomeration of hutches and shacks, and then back again to me. 
Not much like Waknuk, he said. Not much, I agreed. He paused quite lengthily in contemplation, then... Know who I am? he inquired. I think so. I think I found out, I told him. He raised an eyebrow, questioningly. My father had an elder brother, I said. He was thought to be normal until he was about three or four years old. Then his certificate was revoked, and he was sent away. He nodded slowly. But not quite right, he said. His mother loved him. His nurse was fond of him, too. So when they came to take him away, he was already missing. But they'd hush that up, of course. They'd hush the whole thing up, pretend it never happened. He paused again reflectively. Presently, he added, The eldest son. The heir. Wacknock should be mine. It would be, except for this. He stretched out his long arm and regarded it for a moment. Then he dropped it and looked at me again. Do you know what the length of a man's arm should be? No, I admitted. Nor do I. But somebody in Rigo does. Some expert on the true image. So, no whacknook, and I must live like a savage among savages. Are you the eldest son? The only son, I told him. There was a younger one, but no certificate, eh? I nodded. So you too have lost Wacknook. That aspect of things had never troubled me. I don't think I had ever had any real expectations of inheriting Wacknook. There had always been the sense of insecurity, the expectation, almost the certainty, that one day I should be discovered. I had lived too long with that expectation to feel the resentment that embittered him. Now that it was resolved, I was glad to be safely away, and I told him so. It did not please him. He looked at me thoughtfully. You've not got the guts to fight for what's yours by right, he suggested. If it's yours by right, it can't be mine by right, I pointed out. But my meaning was that I've had more than enough of living in hiding. We all live in hiding here, he said. Maybe, I told him. But you can be your own selves. You don't have to live a pretense. You don't have to watch yourselves every moment and think twice whenever you open your mouths. He nodded slowly. We heard about you. We have our ways, he said. What I don't understand is why they are after you in such strength. We think, I explained, that we worry them more than the usual deviants because they've no way of identifying us. I fancy they must be suspecting that there are a lot more of us that they haven't discovered, and they want to get hold of us to make us tell. And even more than usually good reason for not being caught, he said. I was aware that Michael had come in, and that Rosalind was answering him, but I could not attend to two conversations at once, so I left that to her. So they're coming right into the fringes after you. How many of them? he asked. I'm not sure, I said considering how to play our hand to the best advantage. From what I've heard, you should have ways of finding out, he said. I wondered how much he did know about us, and whether he knew about Michael, too, but that seemed unlikely. With his eyes a little narrowed, he went on. It'll be better not to fool with us, boy. It's you thereafter, and you've brought trouble this way with you. Why should we care what happens to you? 
quite easy to put one of you where they'd find you. Petra caught the implication of that and panicked. More than a hundred men, she said. He turned a thoughtful eye on her for a moment. So there is one of you with them. I rather thought there might be, he observed and nodded again. A hundred men is a great many to send after just you three. Too many. I see. He turned back to me. There will have been rumours lately about trouble working up in the fringes. Yes, I admitted. He grinned. So it comes in handy. For the first time they decide that they will take the initiative and invade us and pick you up too, of course. They'll be following your trail, naturally. How far have they got? I consulted Michael and learnt that the main body had still some miles to go before they would join the party that had fired on us and bolted the great horses. The difficulty then was to find a way of conveying the position intelligibly to the man in front of me. He appreciated that and did not seem greatly perturbed. Is your father with them? he asked. That was a question which I had been careful not to put to Michael before. I did not put it now. I simply paused for a moment and then told him, No. Out of the corner of my eye I noticed Petra about to speak and felt Rosalind pounce on her. A pity, said the spidery man. It's quite a time now I've been hoping that one day I'd meet your father on equal terms. From what I've heard I should have thought he'd be there. Maybe he's not such a valiant champion of the true image as they say. He went on looking at me with a steady, penetrating gaze. I could feel Rosalind's sympathy and understanding why I had not put the question to Michael, like a hand-clasp. Then, quite suddenly, the man dismissed me from his attention and turned to consider Rosalind. She looked back at him. She stood with her straight, confident air, eyeing him levelly and coldly for long seconds. Then, suddenly, to my astonishment, she broke. Her eyes dropped. She flushed. He smiled slightly. But he was wrong. It was not surrender to the stronger character, the conqueror. It was loathing, a horror which broke her defences from within. I had a glimpse of him from her mind, hideously exaggerated. The fears she hid so well burst up and she was terrified. Not as a woman weakened by a man, but as a child in terror of a monstrosity. Petra, too, caught the involuntary shape, and it shocked her into a scream. I jumped full at the man, overturning the stool and sending him sprawling. The two men behind us leapt after me, but I got in at least one good blow before they could drag me off. The Spider-Man sat up and rubbed his jaw. He grinned at me, but not with any amusement. Does you credit, he conceded, but not much more. He got up on his gangling legs. Not seen much of the women around here, have you, boy? Take a look at them as you go. Maybe you'll understand a bit more. Besides, this one can have children. I've had a fancy for some children a long time now, even if they do happen to take after their father a bit. He grinned briefly again, and then frowned at me. Better take it the way it is, boy. Be a sensible fellow. I don't give second chances. He looked from me to the men who were holding me. Chuck him out, he told them, 
and if he doesn't seem to understand that that means stay out, shoot him. The two of them jerked me round and marched me off. At the edge of the clearing, one of them helped me along a path with his boot. Keep on going, he said. I got up and turned round, but one of them had an arrow trained on me. He gave a shake of his head to urge me on. So I did what I was told, kept on going, for a few yards until the trees hid me. Then I doubled back under cover. Just what they were expecting. But they didn't shoot me. They just beat me up and slung me back under the undergrowth. I remember flying through the air, but I don't remember landing. Chapter 15 I was being dragged along. There were hands under my shoulders. Small branches were whipping back and slapping me in the face. Shh, whispered a voice behind me. Give me a minute, I'll be all right, I whispered back. The dragging stopped. I lay pulling myself together for a moment and then rolled over. A woman, a young woman, was sitting back on her heels looking at me. The sun was low now, and it was dim under the trees. I could not see her well. There was dark hair hanging down on each side of a sunburnt face, and the glint of dark eyes regarding me earnestly. The bodice of her dress was ragged, a nondescript tawny colour with stains on it. There were no sleeves, but what struck me most was that it bore no cross. I had never before been face to face with a woman who wore no protective cross stitched to her dress. It looked queer, almost indecent. We faced one another for some seconds. You don't know me, David, she said sadly. Until then I had not. It was the way she said David that suddenly told me. Sophie, I said. Oh, Sophie. She smiled. Dear David, she said, have they hurt you badly, David? I tried moving my arms and legs. They were stiff and they ached in several places, so did my body and my head. I felt some blood caked on my left cheek, but there seemed to be nothing broken. I started to get up, but she stretched out a hand and put it on my arm. No, not yet. Wait a little till it's dark. She went on, looking at me. I saw them bring you in. You and the little girl and the other girl. Who is she, David? That brought me fully round with a jolt. Frantically I sought for Rosalind and Petra and could not reach them. Michael felt my panic and came in steadyingly. Relieved, too. Thank goodness for that. We've been worried stiff about you. Take it easy. They're all right, both of them tired out and exhausted. They're asleep. Is Rosalind? She's all right, I tell you. What's been happening to you? I told him. The whole exchange only took a few seconds, but long enough for Sophie to be regarding me curiously. Who is she, David? She repeated. I explained that Rosalind was my cousin. She watched me as I spoke and then nodded slowly. He wants her, doesn't he? She asked. That's what he said, I admitted grimly. She could give him babies? She persisted. What are you trying to do to me? I asked her. So you're in love with her, she went on. A word again. When the minds have learnt to mingle, when no thought is wholly one's own, and each has taken too much of the other ever to be entirely himself alone, 
when one has reached the beginning of seeing with a single eye, loving with a single heart, enjoying with a single joy, when there can be moments of identity and nothing is separate save bodies that long for one another, when there is that, where is the word? There is only the inadequacy of the word that exists. We love one another, I said. Sophie nodded. She picked up a few twigs and watched her brown fingers break them. She said, He's gone away, where the fighting is. She's safe just now. She's asleep, I told her. They're both asleep. Her eyes came back to mine, puzzled. How do you know? I told her briefly, as simply as I could. She went on breaking twigs as she listened. Then she nodded. I remember. My mother said there was something, something about the way you sometimes seemed to understand her before she spoke. Was that it? I think so. I think your mother had a little of it without knowing she had it, I said. It must be a very wonderful thing to have, she said, half wistfully, like more eyes inside you. Something like, I admitted. It's difficult to explain. But it isn't all wonderful. It can hurt a lot sometimes. To be any kind of deviant is to be hurt, always, she said. She continued to sit back on her heels, looking at her hands in her lap, seeing nothing. If she were to give him children, he wouldn't want me any more, she said at last. There was still enough light to catch a glistening on her cheeks. Sophie, dear, I said. Are you in love with him, with this spider-man? Oh, don't call him that, please. We can't any of us help being what we are. His name's Gordon. He's kind to me, David. He's fond of me. You've got to have as little as I have to know how much that means. You've never known loneliness. You can't understand the awful emptiness that's waiting all around us here. I'd have given him babies gladly if I could. I... Oh, why do they do that to us? Why didn't they kill me? It would have been kinder than this. She sat, without a sound. The tears squeezed out from under the closed lids and ran down her face. I took her hand between my own. I remembered watching. The man with his arm linked in the woman's the small figure on top of the pack-horse waving back to me as they disappeared into the trees. Myself, desolate, a kiss still damp on my cheek, a lock tied with a yellow ribbon in my hand. I looked at her now, and my heart ached. Sophie, I said. Sophie, darling, it's not going to happen. Do you understand? It won't happen. Rosalind will never let it happen. I know that. She opened her eyes again and looked at me through the brimming tears. You can't know a thing like that about another person. You're just trying to... I'm not, Sophie. I do know. You and I could only know very little about one another. But with Rosalind it is different. It's part of what thinking together means. She regarded me doubtfully. Is that really true? I don't understand. How should you? But it is true. I could feel what she was feeling about this... about that man. She went on looking at me 
a trifle uneasily. You can't see what I think? she inquired with a touch of anxiety. No more than you can tell what I think, I assured her. It isn't a kind of spying. It's more as if you could just talk all your thoughts if you liked, and not talk them if you wanted them private. It was more difficult trying to explain it to her than it had been to Uncle Axel, but I kept on struggling to simplify it into words until I suddenly became aware that the light had gone and I was talking to a figure I could scarcely see. I broke off. Is it dark enough now? Yes. It'll be safe if we go carefully, she told me. Can you walk all right? It isn't far. I got up, well aware of stiffness and bruises, but not of anything worse. She seemed able to see better in the gloom than I could, and took my hand to lead the way. We kept to the trees, but I could see fires twinkling on my left, and realized that we were skirting the encampment. We kept on round it till we reached the low cliff that closed the northwest side, and then along the base of that, in the shadow, for fifty yards or so. There she stopped, and laid my hand on one of the rough ladders I had seen against the rock face. Follow me, she whispered, and suddenly whisked upwards. I climbed more cautiously until I reached the top of the ladder where it rested against a rock ledge. Her arm reached out and helped me in. Sit down, she told me. The lighter patch through which I had come disappeared. She moved about, looking for something. Presently there were sparks as she used a flint and steel. She blew up the sparks until she was able to light a pair of candles. They were short, fat, burnt with smoky flames, and smelt abominably, but they enabled me to see the surroundings. The place was a cave about fifteen feet deep and nine feet wide, cut out of the sandy rock. The entrance was covered by a skin curtain hooked across it. In one corner of the inner end there was a floor in the roof from which water dripped steadily at about a drop a second. It fell into a wooden bucket. The overflow of the bucket trickled down a groove for the full length of the cave and out of the entrance. In the other inner corner was a mattress of small branches with skins and a tattered blanket on it. There were a few bowls and utensils. A blackened fire hollow near the entrance, empty now, showed an ingenious draught hole drilled to the outer air. The handles of a few knives and other tools protruded from niches in the walls. A spear, a bow, a leather quiver with a dozen arrows in it lay close to the brushwood mattress. There was nothing much else. I thought of the kitchen of the Wenders' cottage, the clean, bright room that had seemed so friendly because it had no texts on the walls. The candles flickered, sent greasy smoke up to the roof, and stank. Sophie dipped a bowl into the bucket, rummaged a fairly clean bit of rag out of a niche, and brought it across to me. She washed the blood off my face and out of my hair, and examined the cause. Just a cut, not deep, she said reassuringly. I washed my hands in the bowl. She tipped the water into the runnel, rinsed the bowl, and put it away. You're hungry, David? she said. Very, I told her. I had had nothing to eat all day except during our one brief stop. Stay here. I won't be long, she instructed, and slipped out under the skin curtain. I sat, looking at the shadows that danced on the rock walls, listening to the plop, plop 
plop of the drips. And very likely, I told myself, this is luxury in the fringes. You've got to have as little as I have, Sophie had said, though it had not been material things that she meant. To escape the forlornness and the squalor, I sought Michael's company. Where are you? What's been happening? I asked him. We've leaguered for the night, he told me. Too dangerous to go on in the dark. He tried to give me a picture of the place as he had seen it just before sunset, but it might have been a dozen spots along our route. It's been slow going all day. Tiring, too. They know their woods, these fringes people. We've been expecting a real ambush somewhere on the way, but it's been sniping and harassing all the time. We've lost three killed, but had seven wounded. Only two of them seriously. But you're still coming on. Yes. And the feeling is now that we do have quite a force here for once. It's a chance to give the fringes something that will keep them quiet for some time to come. Besides, you three are badly wanted. There's a rumour that there are a couple of dozen, perhaps more of us, scattered about Wacknook and surrounding districts, and you have to be brought back to identify them. He paused a moment there. Then he went on in a worried, unhappy mood. In point of fact, David, I'm afraid, very much afraid, there is only one. One? Rachel managed to reach me right at her limit, very faintly. She says something has happened to Mark. They've caught him? No, she thinks not. He'd have let her know if it were that. He simply stopped. Not a thing from him in over twenty-four hours now. An accident, perhaps? Remember Walter Brent, that boy who was killed by a tree? He just stopped like that. It might be. Rachel just doesn't know. She's frightened. It leaves her all alone now. She was right at her limit, and I was almost. Another two or three miles, and we'll be out of touch. It's queer I didn't hear at least your side of this, I told him. Probably while you were knocked out, he suggested. Well... When Petra wakes, she'll be able to keep touch with Rachel, I reminded him. She doesn't seem to have any kind of limit. Yes, of course, I'd forgotten that, he agreed. It will help her a bit. A few moments later, a hand came under the curtain, pushing a wooden bowl into the cave mouth. Sophie scrambled in after it and gave it to me. She trimmed up the disgusting candles and then squatted down on the skin of some unidentifiable animal while I helped myself with a wooden spoon. An odd dish. It appeared to consist of several kinds of shoots, diced meat and crumbled hard bread, but the result was not at all bad and very welcome. I enjoyed it, almost to the last, when I was suddenly smitten in a way that sent a whole spoonful cascading down my shirt. Petra was awake again. I got in a response at once. Petra switched straight from distress to elation. It was flattering, but almost as painful. Evidently she woke Rosalind, for I caught her pattern among the chaos of Michael asking what the hell and Petra's sealant friend anxiously protesting. Presently Petra got a hold of herself, and the turmoil quietened down. There was a sense of all other parties relaxing cautiously. Is she safe now? What was all that thunder and lightning about? Michael inquired. Petra told us, keeping it down with an obvious effort. We thought David was dead. We thought they'd killed him. Now I began to catch Rosalind's thoughts. 
forming into comprehensible shapes out of a sort of swirl. I was humbled, bowled over, happy and distressed all at the same time. I could not think much more clearly in response for all I tried. It was Michael who put an end to that. This is scarcely decent for third parties, he observed. When you two can disentangle yourselves, there are other things to be discussed. He paused. Now, he continued, what is the position? We sorted it out. Rosalind and Petra were still in the tent where I had last seen them. The Spider-Man had gone away, leaving a large, pink-eyed, white-haired man in charge of them. I explained my situation. Very well, said Michael. You say this Spider-Man seems to be in some sort of authority, and that he has come forward towards the fighting. You've no idea whether he intends to join in the fighting himself, or whether he is simply making tactical dispositions? You see, if it is the latter, he may come back at any time. I've no idea, I told him. Rosalind came in abruptly, as near to hysteria as I had known her. I'm frightened of him. He's a different kind, not like us, not the same sort at all. It would be outrageous, like an animal. I couldn't ever. If he tries to take me, I shall kill myself. Michael threw himself on that like a pail of ice water. You won't do anything so damned silly. You'll kill the Spider-Man if necessary. With an air of having settled that point conclusively, he turned his attention elsewhere. At his full range, he directed a question to Petra's friend. You still think you can reach us? The reply came still from a long distance, but clearly and without effort now. It was a calmly confident yes. When? Michael asked. There was a pause before the reply, as if for consultation. Then, in not more than sixteen hours from now, she told him, just as confidently. Michael's scepticism diminished. For the first time, he allowed himself to admit the possibility of her help. Then it is a question of ensuring that you three are kept safe for that long, he told us meditatively. Wait a minute. Just hold on a bit, I told them. I looked up at Sophie. The smoky candles gave enough light to show that she was watching my face intently, a little uneasily. You were talking to that girl, she said. And my sister. They're awake now, I told her. They are in the tent and being guarded by an albino. It seems odd. Odd? she inquired. Well, one would have thought a woman in charge of them. This is the fringes, she reminded me with bitterness. It... Oh, I see, I said awkwardly. Well, the point is this. Do you think there is any way they can be got out of there before he comes back? It seems to me that now is the time. Once he does come back, I shrugged, keeping my eyes on hers. She turned her head away and contemplated the candles for some moments. Then she nodded. Yes, that would be best for all of us. All of us except him, she added half sadly. Yes, I think it can be done. Straight away, she nodded again. I picked up the spear that lay by the couch and weighed it in my hand. It was somewhat light but well balanced. She looked at it and shook her head. You must stay here, David, she told me. But, I began, no. If you were to be seen, there would be an alarm. No one will take any notice of me going to his tent, even if they do see me. 
There was sense in that. I laid the spear down, though with reluctance. But can you? Yes, she said decisively. She got up and went to one of the niches. From it she pulled out a knife. The broad blade was clean and bright. It looked as if it might once have been part of the kitchen furnishings of a raided farm. She slipped it into the belt of her skirt, leaving only the dark handle protruding. Then she turned and looked at me for a long moment. David, she began tentatively. What? I asked. She changed her mind. In a different tone, she said. Will you tell them no noise? Whatever happens, no sounds at all. Tell them to follow me and have dark pieces of cloth ready to wrap around themselves. Will you be able to make all that clear to them? Yes, I told her. But I wish you'd let me. She shook her head and cut me short. No, David. It had only increased the risk. You don't know the place. She pinched out the candles and unhooked the curtain. For a moment, I saw her silhouetted against the paler darkness of the entrance. Then she was gone. I gave her instructions to Rosalind, and we impressed on Petra the necessity for silence. Then there was nothing to do but wait and listen to the steady drip, drip, drip in the darkness. I could not sit still for long like that. I went to the entrance and put my head out into the night. There were a few cooking fires glowing among the shacks, people moving about too, for the glows blinked occasionally as figures crossed in front of them. There was a murmur of voices, a slight, composite stir of small movements, a nightbird calling harshly a little distance away, the cry of an animal still further off, nothing more. We were all waiting. A small. Shapeless surge of excitement escaped for a moment from Petra. No one commented on it. Then, from Rosalind, a reassuring "it's all right" shape, but with a curious secondary quality of shock to it. It seemed wiser not to distract their attention now by asking the reason for that. I listened. There was no alarm, no change in the conglomerate murmur. It seemed a long time until I heard the crunch of grit underfoot directly below me. The poles of the ladder scraped faintly on the rock edge as the weight came on them. I moved back into the cave out of the way. Rosalind was asking silently, a little doubtfully, "Is this right? Are you there, David?" "Yes. Come along up," I told them. One figure appeared dimly outlined in the opening, then another, smaller form, then a third. The opening was blotted out. Presently, the candles were alight again. Rosalind and Petra too watched silently in horrid fascination, as Sophie scooped a bowlful of water from the bucket to wash the blood off her arms and clean the knife. End of disc five.